Okay, so here we are with Dave Gallas. Hello, how are you guys doing? Good. It's like we haven't talked ever. It's been a while. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. yeah I'm trying to, I was trying to remember the last time we saw you. It had to have been in the 90s, right? Uh, no, um, it was in 99 and 2000 because I moved back to Ohio and we were discussing empty space. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that was the last time. And then we hung out a few times after that and then uh, you guys moved. Yeah. Yeah. Even though we do talk, me and I mean, me and you, we text quite often or me Facebook message quite often. But yeah, it, it has been quite a while. It has. It has. Time like, has gone by way 20. too quick. Oh, absolutely. It's, you don't look any older. Oh, <laughs> well, it's, it's the magic of internet video. You can't see the grays in my hair, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's so weird, though. You really don't. No, you do. You look pretty much the same. Um, I, I, that's how I feel about you guys. I feel like it's just been yeah. like we were working on music a year ago or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, it's hard to believe that it's been um, about close to three years when in flickers was finished i mean it was released later in the year but we were really wrapping it up in the spring of 18 um there was yep. just a lag with project because of the um the backlog in vinyl production right. Um, right otherwise it probably would have been out in the summer but um so it time flies i tell you absolutely it does um god i think it's been like uh, the three or four years since my last time. I think it was three years since my last album. And that was just a compilation of just garbage that I was working on for the last seven years before that. Yeah. Well, I don't think it was garbage, but <laughs> <laughs> probably better to say stuff. Stuff. Hey, sure. I really um, like that hat you're wearing there. That's a, that's a very cool looking hat. Oh, thanks, man. That's um, special ordered that from uh, some uh, website in Europe. <laughs> So we no, were talking thank you, though. Thank you for sending. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, we were I think it's my favorite. Go ahead, Tara. See, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about what your plans are for your uh, music and stuff. So lay it on us. Oh, um, it's been a while. It's been a while. I've, I haven't done much this past 10 years, of course. I've helped with the last two albums I put out were one in 2017 but uh there was a time where i wasn't sure i wanted to continue doing music just because um i don't know the, the obligations that you feel when you're doing it and sort of the goals that you put upon yourself but i think after this last year i realized i think it's time to start getting back into it start working on it full time or as yeah. much as i can just for fun and you know just to do it for myself i think there's a lot of you know, there's directors, film directors, in fact, that they do films and then after a while they get old, they kind of lose that passion for doing film. And then eventually they kind of re, um, I don't know, they, they, they re sort of um, decide. Yeah, restart. And they want to end up doing it for themselves and end up having fun with it. Yeah. So my goal is to, for just even my music was to, try and do like an EP every three or four months. That's just one song every month, every then every three or four months release what I have as an EP. And then maybe at a year or so, 
see if I can get it pressed. Cool. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's what I'm up to. <laughs> you know, I think, um, and me and you have talked about this in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, you work on an album and you, you put so much into it. And when you're done, you feel spent to a degree. And yeah. I can't tell you how many times after an album, I felt like, well, this is it. Um, after a line that connects, I remember we were driving to Ohio for a vacation and telling Tara, yeah, line connect, line that connects really turned out really well. I have nothing left to say, so we can just quietly go away. And then somehow, right. you know, a year later, a few new songs come out, starts percolating and then, and flickers came out and then it was the exact same thing for me. It's like, okay, well, I said everything I could say. I guess I'll just go away and now here um, a few, you know, three years later or whatever. And you end up doing one song and then one song turns into a couple. Now I'm thinking of um, some other stuff, which I've talked about in other podcasts about a, a potential EP yep. coming up this summer. And as we were just talking about before we started, um, you know, maybe the three of us right here will do a, a collaboration and be part of a split single that we had previously committed to, but uh, we backed out just because um, the other band had some commitments going on and, and I had another song going on. So uh, yeah, I, I understand your angle for sure. I think if anyone in the world, I think me and you sort of understand that angle of like, I'm passionate, but that passion can drive you to want to do music all the time, but it can also want you to quit music a lot of times because you just let so much out. And sometimes you're just like, man, I've just, I've, I didn't, I need a recharge period. I just can't, right. I can't do it right now. Yeah, that's true. Oh, it was interesting. Actually, I think after the line that connects, I was like super uh, motivated after it was finished. And I was like, oh, I'm going to just keep writing music, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I think, and that's, and some of those songs ended up being on my, the, whatever the last album I did, but no, you're absolutely right. I think you, you push yourself so far to complete an album. And when you finish that album, you think, you know, immediately like mentally in your head, you're like, this is it. I, there's no way I can ever do another album again. Um, I remember my first album. I was like, I have no idea. I I'm done. I, I don't have anything else I can write about. And like you said, just a year later, a few months later, you start just, you know, messing around on the guitar and all of a sudden an idea turns into a song and that, you know, out of that comes another song and it all starts to build up again. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, you know, um, I remember after we did Cold and then, you know, you went back to Arizona and... I was petrified about working on Australia because cold had set the bar so damn high. I thought, oh my gosh, can I can I can I replicate that, especially with Dave not here? Um, I was I was pretty pretty nervous about the whole thing. And that's pretty much been the the way it's been since. You do an album and you think, wow, that really turned out well. Like in the second era, I did quiet moments. And when we're going into a line that connects, I was nervous. Like, what if, what if that same level of um, magic doesn't, or you know, connecting and really creating something that really works? In fact, just today I was working on a, 
tracking some a, a song and I was like, oh my gosh, what if I can't record it like the previous song that I just did? What if that last song was the last good thing I ever did <laughs> and the, it's over now? And it's been that way for a long time for me. I think it's probably a, a something that we have in common with people who have creative and are in creative arts. Um, it's that constant stress of, am I going to be able to do something else after this? How can I possibly write something or, or paint something or record something now after I've you've accomplished something? Um, and I think sometimes, like I always see um, people who are creative, I have sort of an alter ego. And it's that alter ego, I think that's that creative part of them. And, you know, when you finish a project up, you know, you, you fulfilled that sort of need and you, you put it away for a while. And then I think after a while that alter ego starts growing hungry mm -hmm. again. Like you, you need to fulfill it with creating something else again. Start writing more music, painting, whatever it is, drawing. Um, well, and, and don't you also think it's kind of like for a lot of people, you kind of feel like you're pulling the wool over someone's eyes. And so you're like, okay, well, I accidentally did something really great. <laughs> yeah. I'll probably never be able to do that again. And it was an accident that it turned out well last time. I don't know if I have it in me to accidentally do do it well again. Absolutely, that's that's exactly how I feel. I feel like a um, a charlatan at times. Yeah, you know? totally. Like, I get imposter syndrome. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I back both what you say there. I remember back in the '90s when we toured. I always felt like we were the like we come in and be like, oh my gosh, Smoking we're, with we're with professionals now that we're, the jig is up. We're going to be exposed. <laughs> Somehow people would be like, wow, that's amazing. I'm just like, oh yeah, success. We tricked them again. It's like a magic trick. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The playing live is like, you know, it's an entirely different skill set, And it's just like, man, you know, we spent so many years in a bedroom recording, recording our music you know everything's under our control and then once you step out of that that safe space you know um you know we're just like god we have we don't have no, no idea what we're doing here you know and i think that was my biggest problem with playing live was like i just felt like the the biggest amateur you know i'm like i i feel like i'm faking this you know this is not you get bands who play live like two or three times a week for years and years and decades and they have developed that skill of playing live and we're like studio people we do everything in our bedrooms and we have to go play live and it's just like it's like the worst thing ever you know what i mean it's just it's it's where you where i'm you know shut in basically you know i don't want to be out there playing in front of people yeah, <laughs> yeah. I hear you. well and i literally was a trained monkey because mike just showed me i don't know how to play the keyboard it's just like you press these keys. I memorized it and I was good to go. But if I forgot. You played fine. I mean, I, I you had played keyboards before, hadn't you? No. Oh, no. Really? <laughs> Never. <laughs> I had sheet sheets on when we did the, the cold tour because I was so paranoid about forgetting my parts that I had little crib notes. And I would flip them for every song, even though I knew the songs by heart, but I was so petrified that I would blank out and then be lost. Yep. And it was just the two of us on stage at that point. So if one of us is out, <laughs> it's really freaking obvious. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Oh. 
you know, you're talking about the studio thing versus live. And I, I did an interview a few years ago or something, and I was telling them that I don't think we ever really made the live <laughs> transition because we were so studio oriented. And that's how you ended up being the band is that we were sort of like the Tempe rejects and that, you know, we were just two studio musicians and somehow we gravitated together. And I don't think they, that the people that sort of pushed us together realized um, the Frankenstein monster that they were making that just would blow out a Tempe and be like, we're out of here and we will go on to bigger and better things. Um, but I, I never felt that I made the, the live transition because I think one of the best shows I've ever played, if not the best, was the Night of Beautiful Noise. And what mm -hmm. we did there was we just literally took the studio and put it on stage. Exactly. Just did what we did in the studio, but we did it live. But, you know, once once touring came about and we had to rep replicate the songs on the albums and had to deal with live technical aspects, I mean, both of us are very crafty in the studio, but pretty naive with live sound. And oh my gosh, that Start Corner tour, it's like right. it was a three, it was a three member tour. It was me, you and feedback. <laughs> right. That's and true. Yeah. We should have just, you know, just played noise the entire, you know, the entire set. Well, you know, my whole, the whole concept that I had about, um, when we did um, Beautiful Noise was, I realized that Lycia was a studio band and there was gonna be absolutely no way to, to do that justice live. And so I came up with this idea of creating two parallel bands, the studio Lycia and the live Lycia. And that's why I initiated the line, um, Last Thoughts Before Sleep, because I thought, this is gonna be a live song. We'll never record it in the studio. And then we'll have our studio stuff. So we play live. We'll play a whole different set of stuff. You know, of course, when you're touring, that doesn't work because you're touring. And um, as you probably remember, when we played in um, Hollywood uh, on the Star Corner tour, there was some guy there the entire show screaming, play down, play down. So he, it's like the only thing he probably owned was across this gray land. And so he was screaming this the whole set. Well, you know, people want to hear the songs on the album, as do I when I go to see yeah. a concert. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants to hear this obscure shit they never heard of before. Until, <laughs> until after the fact, and then right. they hear it on a live album, they're like, oh my God, that's the greatest thing I ever heard. Right. So I'm not going to say that about uh, Last Thoughts Before Sleep, because you were there, Dave. You remember that night. It was an insanely magical night in that there was a shoegaze festival. Right. And we were the band that nobody knew, but we, we stole that show and the applause mm -hmm. we got that night and the attention. I right. mean, we went there that and we left. I thought, oh my gosh, we've made it. Yeah, and right. I don't know if we've ever done a live show as good as this <clears throat> after. <laughs> it was it was definitely surprising because I remember after we got done with our set, how the reaction we had from the people that were there um, and then obviously finding out that there was a snake, a cable snake that nearly killed Mike Plaster, of course. Yep. I told that story in that pre previous one. It was crazy. Yes, that's right. I just remember, and I, you probably, when the, the light guy was coming around and he was asking all the bands what they wanted for lights. And I remember, um, I don't know what band it was. Maybe it was Half String. 
they were like, just put a blue light on stage. And the next band was like, yeah, that sounds good. And I remember I went to the light guy and I said to him, make it seem like a UFO just landed. <laughs> and, and I went to the sound guy and I said, turn it up as loud as it possibly can be. I wanted to make an impression. And I think we made an impression. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I actually ran into the original version of that song. When we originally got together, we, we sort, of, sort of put together that 20 minutes of music. And then um, we hadn't talked to each other like a month went by. And you uh, went back and redid it all. Yeah. And that's what we ended up using. But I originally just came about the, um, the original tracks for that, which... Which didn't actually the what you came up with was, was far superior than what we had before. So it ended up. Do you still have it? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yep. You gotta send that to us. I'd love to hear it. Okay. Okay. It's probably radically different. I mean, I what happened was, you know, I I didn't really I just I wanted it to be really chaotic, and then when I was redoing it at the end, I was just like running all the synths through distortion, and I was just tweaking the parameters and uh, it's just one of those happy accidents where everything just went right and there's a part in that performance where you're on stage and you're you're making noise and you're 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 twisting the parameters and somehow some way everything just tweaked right as we were getting ready to go into the um the sun beats hard portion and you're just twisting this this like oscillation or something and it just sort of goes it just sort of like, and then the drums kick in. It sounds so rehearsed and it sounds so perfect. And that's those happy accidents like that. You can't, it's just, it's mad. That was purely magic, that performance and how it, it played out. Um, oh yeah. I, I don't think we could, we could replicate that. And so it's really good that that just, we left it as a one and done. Mm -hmm. Tara and I tried performing the song one time. In fact, it was a show that you probably remember. It was in Pittsburgh at an art gallery. And, and you got, um, we were driving separately and there was a, like a snowstorm or something. You got separated from us and you couldn't find the club. That's well, right. That night, um, we tried playing that song and it just didn't work. It was- We did it in New York City once. I thought we just did it one time, but- No, we did it at downtime. But neither time did it really work. It wasn't as loud. It wasn't as loud and it wasn't dynamic. I, you know, it's one of those things that just that night in 93, it just worked. Yeah. And um, it, it was, you know, we sort of peaked with Lycia Live with the first show. And <laughs> um, I think the last official, I mean, the, what I consider to be the last Lycia show that Tara and I did at Irving Plaza in New York was sort of the second best one. So the, the two best shows were the first and last. We did one other show here in Scottsdale in 2009, which was just, I don't even really like to consider the Lycia show because it was just so weird. And there was a lot, there was a lot of issues and it just didn't there, work out. There's always is like, you know, like I was saying, it's just like, it's one of those things, like if you're, I imagine if, if you know, if we had continued or if I, you know, if I was still doing live stuff, continue doing shows on a regular basis and progressively you know oh, evolve yeah. and get better it you know it did it get would. better it got yeah. better yeah you know i i think one of the reasons why cold is a, such a rock solid performance album is because of the touring we did leading up to it i mean we toured 
um, pretty much that whole summer going into um, into the um, uh, fall, and then went to record that album. And the, you know, the performance on that album, I listen to it sometimes and think, man, we were we were a fine tuned band then. But as as always with almost everything in my life. Um, Timing and being out of sync. I always say all the time that I lived a life out of sync. And, um, you know, we did this, what potentially could be Delicia's greatest album. And then we're just like, ah, I've had it. We all just sort of went our own own way. And um, in a lot of interviews after A Line That Connects, I always told people that A Line That Connects is the album that would have followed Cold if we would have all stayed together. Because I think that's, I think we would have continued in that progression and we would have probably made um, that that's that kind of that style of music. And I think it, if we would have just continued, who knows what would happened. But hey. right. right. We were young and dumb. Been, I mean, I've spent my entire career being young and dumb. Now I'm old and dumb. I'm always <laughs> right. making strange decisions. <laughs> Some kind of sub, subconscious self-sabotage, I guess. Yeah, right. It's always an internal battle, I think. It's, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, when I left, I, I didn't leave because I really wanted to. It was sort of like I was just, I, I was running, I was terrible with finances. You know, I was young, like Tara said, I was just young, young and dumb. I was yeah. terrible with finances. I was literally broke. And I was like, my first reaction was, run. you know, you exactly run, run, run back home. And, I think it took me three years to realize that was kind of a stupid idea. I should have stayed. It it is dumb. It was dumb on all of our parts because it was such a, I think because we were around each other 24 seven, you get on each other's nerves. And instead of just like being an adult and being like, dude, what the fuck? And then like talking about it, you just just internally go, dude, what the fuck? And then go hide from the problem, (laughs) you know? Like, it's all cool now because we're all friends and everything and it is what it is. But it's yeah. like at the time it was just like, well, I'm not going to talk to him if he's not going to talk to me. And, you know, just dumb. <laughs> I think yeah. also it goes back to the whole thing of the, the studio band becoming a live band. Mm-hmm. You don't realize the level of pressure because before, you know, we were just making music. And now we're on a label and we're expected to be important on that label and we're getting national international um opportunities and exposure and suddenly you realize you're at this higher level and the the pressure is there and because we didn't really i always felt that lycia was perceived to be a lot bigger than what we were and so for me, I was, oh, I, you talk about being scared. I was always scared back then because I thought we got to get on tour and we got to be doing these rock solid professional shows. But I always felt like we had to like compromise on so many levels on the live front because we didn't, we, have, the we, money. We didn't have the money. The and so we couldn't have a sound guy. We didn't have a light guy. We couldn't bring a couple extra musicians along. We had to do it on the cheap. And you're just thinking, People are really expecting these epic performances. And I just, for myself, I can only speak for myself. I thought, I don't know if I have it in me to give them what they want. And so there was this 
pressure on all of us. And, you know, like you said, we were young and, and I'm as aloof as you. Uh, I like to stay in my house, but my dream life is just to be able to stay at home all the time. (laughs) And so suddenly, you know, you take these, you take these aloof people that would prefer to be at home and now you're on the rock and roll summer tour. I mean, you remember that, that tour in 95, we were driving around like, Hey, there's the deadheads again. Every place we went, there were the deadheads. Like we were like, we were like following the Grateful Dead around. Every rest no, stop we went to was like Tad. Everywhere we went, Tad was. Is that the band? Tad and Clutch. Tad and Clutch. Everywhere we went. Every place yeah. we went, they had played there like the day before or something, and we all the sort of like. Hoped, yeah, I remember we were all at like in Boston at the Middle East, I think it was, and everybody yeah. had just coalesced, and we were all playing at the same place at the same time. We were downstairs, <laughs> and they were like upstairs, and we're like. Hey, there's that band that's like we always see that the flyers. Right. But they look as miserable as us. I remember seeing the one guy. I, I think it was the, the main guy in Teddy who's sitting in his van looking just as happy as we were, which was like, oh my God, I just want to be home. Right. Right. You're tired, you're constipated, you're you're just pissed off. Yeah. Well, and yeah. they crammed in that teeny tiny car. Mm. A geo storm. Yeah, that was a blast. Oh my God. When when we were when we were uh, driving around in a geostorm, <laughs> whoever sat in back would get pelted by your cigarette ashes. Oh, every yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I also like, remember driving into. Um, we were, we were getting ready to go in the most busy part of the tour into Florida. We're driving down the freeway, and I said, "Let's." I'm driving. All of a sudden, the car just goes boom, and I'm gliding. And we just glide off the freeway on a Sunday afternoon and glide right into the only gas station of probably like 20 miles. And we were stuck there. And um, I had to walk through a swamp to get to the town of Live Oak to rent a car so we could go down. And then we went to um, Florida. And I don't think I slept for like four days because we went down to um, Miami, played a show. Mm-hmm. I think Jason Wallach got married. Jason Wallach of Unquiet Void got married. So we um, we were attended the wedding and then we recorded a comp song with them. And then we went to play Tampa. Then we yeah. went to Atlanta. We went back to Live Oak to get the car that had been fixed. And then we went to Atlanta. Hey, and remember I, was, we rented I had that slept van. at all. Remember we rented that van and what didn't they screw up the tires on it or something crazy? Or was that Sam's van? Remember? No, we had- no, that oil change or something and they screwed something no, that was the project van on a later tour um, we had an oil that was also in florida i think wasn't it i can't remember i think it was yeah i, I can't oh, florida, remember. that's my message but you know that's the level of tour that the, the burning circle tour was i mean we were driving around in a, a geo storm with a rooftop carrier carrier yeah. um, dave Who's the biggest guy in the band was jammed into the back seat along with <laughs> an amp. I mean, like all this other stuff is your rack. And I had my seat pushed all the way to the forward, driving like this. And we'd go days without sleep. But I mean, you know what? <laughs> it, it was crazy and weird, but man, I, I miss that sense of just free yeah. living day to day. You know, you just like, whatever, I don't care, man. But um, I yeah, can never do that. Uh, what was that? 
Tara has a question about the bone circle. What? Oh, yeah. Did you see um, that guy commented on your post that he wanted us to talk about the burning circle? No, I didn't. I haven't logged in uh, to that Facebook account yet. No, I, I saw something that said um, he had interviewed you and, and you were like something about me being a dick or something like that. No, what? I said I was surprised I didn't say that you were a dick. No. No, he said that he interviewed me about you and I said that you were an amazing musician and I responded with, I'm surprised I didn't say he was a dick, but I was kidding. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm not an <laughs> exceptional musician. I'm a hack. <laughs> you know, actually, I think it'd be fun talking about the burning circle because yeah. uh, I have a job now. It has, we all have jobs. I mean, it's hard to make a living off of music, especially when you're not touring. And I mean, of course, COVID derailed a lot of uh, the newer bands, but you know, I have a job and it's, it's an important job. And I don't, of course, I want to be a musician full time. So I, I don't really like my job. And so every day for the last, you know, probably 20 years, I take an hour lunch and I walk and I spend my entire lunchtime walk thinking about music and and I, when I think about the best times for me, the most happy times in my life for music, I think of uh, the current era, which I'm completely satisfied with. But in terms of the old era, I think of two specific time frames that are my happiest times. One is the very early days when John Fair and I were just working on music all the time. And the second one was the recording of The Burning Circle. Oh, right on. Uh, it was a, a very happy time for me because I came out of that really bad funk mental state I was in that was a day in the stark corner and, and suddenly life seemed um, like there was hope again and everything was good. And then we, after um, a beautiful noise, we did the stark corner tour and as yep. difficult as aspects of that was because of technical issues, we literally spent probably a year and a half rock solid in your your home studio in tempe mm -hmm. and yeah i always remember that as like really good times because yeah. we were just kicking out a lot of good music and we were really clicking in the studio and just going to burning circle really i uh, i think was went into a very new direction for 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 me mm -hmm. and probably for you too we i think we went into a completely new territory and I still remember, you know, all those, I'd get over there in the late afternoon, we'd record in the evening, and, yeah. and we did it like what, four or five times a week, and for like a year and a half almost, from including Bleak and the Burning Circle, and so, sure. Um, sure. you know, what are your perceptions of that time frame? Yeah, that was a <clears throat> that was a wonderful wonderful period of time. Actually, it was really nice because I remember. Yeah, every every afternoon you you come out, you 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 pull up, and then we go right into the studio. We'd open up the doors, the double doors, and you get that smell of um, it was the orange blossom smells. You know, yeah. Back and it was so nice and peaceful. And then you would you would have you had everything prepared, so we would just get everything set. We we we'd, we'd um, do like a sound check, see how you liked it. And then you do like, I don't know, we record like the, the acoustic guitars for four songs. And then uh, we go back and then you do keyboards or something else or your, or your electric guitar parts. And then I would play to you what I did before on some of the previous songs. And you would say, okay, I like this, right? Can you change this a little bit? 
it was an extremely productive period of time. And yeah, I have some great, very fond memories of, of uh, spending those days in the studio with you. And I think, you know, if, if financial obligations put aside, if we, if all three of us had a chance, if we could say, yeah, we could live in a, you know, in a work in a studio and do nothing but work on music, we would probably be putting out like an album, like a month, you know, easily because we just get into that routine of just working. And that's how it was in Burning Circle. I think we were really at a creative peak. We could just keep on just, we were just writing music and you had every week you came in with more songs and more material and you had it so well prepared. And I think that's what really made for this the extremely strong, um, the, the first disc is just so well done because you had, your parts were just mathematically perfect. And like you had everything scripted, ready to go and very well prepared. And it was, it was easy to record. It was like, we, we ran into a little problems here and there, but because we didn't have things like automation, we didn't have what we have now, the, the technological, you know, innovations that we have that we can use when we do music, you know, back then it was, it was, there was more challenges there, you know, with working with only seven or eight tracks, depending on if we're going to, sequence a bunch of stuff yeah but it was incredible yeah i i look back on that with really really good um great memories so for me um the reason why everything was so prepared is that that was the first time in my life after <clears throat> um, after the start corner tour I, I didn't have to work except for just occasional very short-term um temp jobs because it was the first time that i was actually making enough royalties to to squeak by a living and so during the burning circle time, you know, I was living with um, your buddy, Jason and yeah. half string renting a room from a, in a house that I was sharing with them. And so I would spend my days when you were at your job, um, demoing songs. And a lot of the songs were already demoed well before. So when I, when, when, when I bring songs into your studio, I already had versions on four, that I recorded on a four track that had the acoustic guitar, two electric guitar parts and the drum machine parts already done. And so I was bringing in stuff that I had already demoed and was familiar with. So it was just getting it in your studio and um, re-recording them with, you know, good mic placement for, actually we didn't even do mic placement for the acoustic guitar, which is what I exclusively do now. I never record direct on acoustic guitar. I do it with the mic, but back then, you think about this. This is sort of amazing. I had that applause acoustic electric, and we ran directly out of that cheap ass pickup, <laughs> right? Which sounds so direct, and yet somehow we made it sound like a real acoustic guitar played live in the room. Yeah. And I think that, you know, hey man, I'm just gonna dream <laughs> it for free, I guess. But you know the <laughs> the our ability to make stuff sound major label quality in an, an, an eight track cassette studio. I mean, we should probably get some kind of like honorary Grammy or something for that because <laughs> it doesn't seem fair that bands that go into studios that have everything they could possibly want equipment wise and some producer that just tell that leads them away. We were, we, we had minimal equipment. And we really got the best of that. I mean, I remember recording vocals in that little like side <laughs> closet room in there. It was like 110 degrees in there. I was like, 
pile drive through those songs and we didn't care and then we'd get done and we'd go and stand in front of your house and I'd, your dad probably was pissed off as hell because i'd leave about 20 cigarette butts on the curb but um right. it, was good, it was a good time very productive time and um yeah. and it was also at a time where lycia was definitely taking that next step from being i mean it was at that time that you know major labels were even coming around i just saw on the news a couple days ago that the woman from megaforce records had passed and oh, wow no. and the thing about it is that at that around that same time project records had hooked up with uh, megaforce records and right. johnny z there was pretty instrumental in getting um us distribution i believe through mm -hmm. ada which is warner brother records distribution and so to a certain extent, it was at that time we went from being uh, a, a smaller indie band to yeah. being a band that had major label distribution, and so you know it was a it was it was a time where it seemed like the that that, that all the dreams that I had in the '80s that consistently got dashed. It looked like it was going to happen. It, it really did, and I was super excited about that whole time. And um, I remember us standing out in front of your 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 parents' house because your studio was in this really cool, really cool space in in yep. the back of your parents' house. And what I am assuming used to be probably like a storage room or a um, a mm -hmm. porch or something that was converted. And it was a it was about the perfect little home studio that I can imagine. And mm -hmm. I also remember we would occasionally take breaks and go swimming. Yes, yeah, we did. So really, it was really awesome. Yep. Yeah. It really was. It, it it was interesting because you know it's like as a you know as a musician you know you as a kid you know you think about what you want to do you start working on music you get a four track you work on music and then when things actually start to happen when success starts to happen sometimes you're not prepared for it and and I think and I know for myself I'm like I I thought I was prepared for it. But when things start happening, I realized there's I'm totally not prepared for it, you know, and yeah. even people like even like John Frusciante from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, he wasn't prepared for it. You know, he had to drop out for a while because he just it, it it's so overwhelming, you know, and I mean, everything you dream about, everything you want as, as you know, as you're doing music in your bedroom, you want to be signed to a major label record or you know record company and you want things to happen, but you're not prepared for it. And, and then when it happens, you just, it blows you away and, you're, and it, it throws you off your feet. It was like a tidal wave. When we moved to Ohio, I didn't really talk a lot to you about it. I talked a bit to Tara about it, but there was like all these opportunities that were coming our way that seemed unrealistic to me. They seemed so big. And I was so intimidated by them that I was turning them down because I was just afraid. Right. I was afraid. And, and I lived with a lot of guilt for um, through the 2000s when I just sort of went into, I went AWOL because I thought I worked my ass off from 1981 on. And when the opportunities came, I was afraid. And I would say, oh, step back, hold on, this is going too quick, let me step back, let me think about this. And Tara would always be like, oh, I think we should do it. I'm like, oh, you crazy, you, you, stop being so 
we got to be realistic about this. But the reality was, is I was, I was afraid. I was frightened beyond belief that I was going to be exposed as a fraud and that I was going to be up someplace and it, it it was just going to fall apart. And so tours were being offered to us. Shows were being offered to us. Deals were being offered to us. And I turned them down left and right. I, I don't want to go into anything specific because, you know, it seems ridiculous to talk about like so-and-so said this or this play, this label said this. But all I will say is that offers were there. And for some bizarre reason, I turned them down. Yep. Yep. Well, that's and- insecurity. I was ready to freaking jump off a building. I, you know. <laughs> I still am kind of that way in a way, but I just think it was like Dave said, kind of fast. And then we had so many like technical problems when we did try to play live and we knew we needed to add more musicians and we know we needed the sound man, but we didn't have the financial backing at all to do that. And at that point, bands didn't get paid anything. Like you you were lucky if you got more than $200 a night, you can't Mm -hmm. finance a tour on $200 a night when you have zero label support, like literally zero label. Well, let's be fair. I mean, they did a lot of advertisement and we did get a van from them, but I mean, they were in the same project was in the same situation. We were, we were all thrown into this world that was bigger than what any of us were. Um, There's always this perception, you know, that project was the new 4AD and that Lycia was, this bigger band. I mean, we had people asking us if we flew into the shows. There was this perception that we were all bigger and then we were all out there trying to present that thing that, yeah, we are that big. But so I, you know, I'm not, I mean, Project gave the support to us that they, that they financially could afford to do. And, you know, it was all beyond us. I mean, we, we, this was uncharted territory for every one of us. And it was difficult to navigate. I think one of the funniest things was when we went to that show in Toledo to play with Typo. And we pulled up in that little tiny car. And they had like three buses. And like all the other bands had these like U-Haul trailers and like big old vans. And we're pulling in in a little Geostorm parking, right? right? I just told that story um, on a podcast a couple weeks ago. And I was like, we're not parking in there. That's too embarrassing. So I went, we went and parked in a regular parking lot and carried our equipment. And I just thought, this is just going to be too humiliating. We're like, but I mean, we ended up not playing that show. It was just, yeah, that was, it, was a bad just, day. it was a weird, that was a weird, yeah. weird that day. Been you know what? A disaster. <laughs> it would have been an absolute disaster. In fact, I feel fairly confident if we would have done that show, we probably would have stopped doing music the next day because <laughs> it would have been a disaster. It's true. Um, a a a, fan, a a a a very large. To death. I mean, it was a large, large venue. It was a a summer sunny day, hot as hell. There was a quarry next to it where people were swimming, and it was all a bunch of metal fans. And then we mm-hmm. were because Typo Negative liked us. We were going to play just before them. Yeah. That would have been a disaster. And. Sam from Project was coming in to do sound, and and he he was late. He didn't wouldn't got there in time. Yep. And they told us that we weren't going to have stage monitors, and we were an electronic band that had no amps. 
it would have been it would have been the last day of Lycia. We we would have played that show and we would have probably very quietly rode back in the car from um, Toledo to Streetsboro where we lived at the time and said, meh, it's over. Right. right. I'm done. I'm not playing again. <laughs> it was I'm a fun day though. <laughs> right. It oh, was. was a weird day. You guys, did you guys go swimming in the quarry? No. No, I just walked okay. around, got sunburned. Yeah, we all um, had a stroke. That's about it. And to top it off, for some bizarre reason, I mean, this is a common theme in my life. I decided that would be a good day to stop smoking. So <laughs> no, I spent no the day way. like what? roaming the crowd, bombing cigarettes, <laughs> including sneaking onto the a typo negative bus, bombing <laughs> cigarettes, cigarettes from candy of typo negative. And he's like, hey, nice to meet. And I'm like, hey, do you mind if I have one of your cigarettes? He's like, look at me sort of funny. He's like, yeah, here, here. And then um, some guy, I think it was uh, a buddy, of, uh, a person we knew back then. Sid? Sid from um, West Virginia. He just came out of the blue as a lifesaver. He was like my hero today. He's like, here, I got a whole pack. Do you want it? I was like, oh, yeah, give them to me. Why the hell would you decide to quit smoking? <laughs> it's so randomly. Um, you've been married to me for 20 plus years. You know the answer. I mean, this, this is the kind of decisions that I make in my life. It was such an awkward day. It was fun though. And we all got sunburned in like just select places. We had like, we had like, some had sunscreen, but we all forgot like one place. Mine was like right here. For some yeah. reason, I was like, had my shirt unbuttoned. We didn't have sunscreen. It was like, and I was like, oh my God, my chest, it's like a piece of bacon. You had your, your gold chains, your chest hair and your gold chains popping yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that whole Burning Circle tour was a trip. And um, <laughs> you guys obviously remember this really well, but when we played Detroit, what a... Uh -huh. What, I can't remember I mean, Detroit. What, what happened? Well, first of all, we got there and we thought it was a regular show. Us and Transit Sun showed up and it turned out to be <laughs> promoted by the club. Tour night. And there was some other band from Texas called Pocket Fishermen. Super <laughs> cool guys. Super cool guys. They were like a punk band. They were really nice. And, and so we were like, we were like, we'll let you guys play first. Well, I mean, we'll let you guys play last because we were just like, we want out of here. And I remember after the show, we were like, this show was like the worst show of the tour. And they said, this is the best show of the tour for us. There were like five people there. there but was. I also remember this. We pulled up and someone laughed and said, you're not going to want to park there. And I was like, this is a great parking spot. Yeah. Well, we learned after the show why. <laughs> remember, we came out and the entire car was covered with mayflies. Like completely covered. Completely no covered. It's like a winter snow. And I went, I literally was like wiping them off with my arms. They were everywhere. And for we years, found them years later. Years later in, in your old room in Streetsboro. Oh my God. We made that the music studio after you moved. And I put all the tour crates in there. I, literally like four years later, I'd open the tour crates up to find equipment and there would be like 25 dead mayflies in there still. And glitter. And glitter. Glitter's the mayfly. That's the Bernie Circle tour. 
<laughs> that, that night also was the night that I um, went blank on stage and forgot how to play one song. And I said, skip that song. That was the very night that made me write crib notes for the following tour. <laughs> because I never wanted that to happen ever again. <laughs> remember, I was just like, skip this song. Yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah. I got that state, that frozen brain thing. <laughs> oh, my God. The pocket fisherman. I totally remember that. I should Google them. I mean, they were super nice guys, and they were they just were. they were just they were just like us. They were just a band that had a record out, and they were just touring the country. But I mean, it's situations like that where you you pull into a town, and you're like, "All right, man, we're gonna rock out Detroit tonight. I mean, it's gonna be a good show." And then you're there, and you're like, a dose of reality. The club owners are just treating you like you're just some. Remember they didn't have direct boxes either or something? There was like some Yeah, we had, we had to rig something up with between ours and Trans the Sun's yeah. equipment. But um, we got I mean I mean we it's got funny paid like dollars, didn't we, from the show? I can't I can't remember. Um <laughs> I just remember that that tour was really strange because we would play some places and it was like wow, like when we played um uh, Limelight in New York City on the fourth of July, I yeah. was like oh my gosh this is we're playing in new york city on and we're headlining on the fourth of july at the limelight and the place was packed and mm -hmm. you just it's it's moments like that when you first start playing music that you dream about mm -hmm. and it just went so well and then you're like <clears throat> a couple of days later you're doing you're playing some other place and you're just like wow it was like I mean, luckily we always had halfway decent attendant crowds, but sometimes you show up at some of these clubs and and you're just like, what? What in the world? I mean, right. we're on like, tour, but this is like, this is pretty, this is pretty rough. I mean, I, do you have any equipment at all? Yeah, no, we had no, we barely had any equipment at all. I remember um, when we were staying at the Omni. Was that Virginia? Oh, yeah. yeah. And after the show, we'd come back and I was walking around the hotel with uh, Scott from from the record label. Is his name Scott? I, I can't remember. And we ran into the violin player of, of the Dave Matthews band. Yeah. In the lobby. And the, and the yeah. guy thought we were waiting to hang out with him. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember his name. I feel really bad. And and we were like, who the, who the who the F was this guy? And he's like, I think it's the violin player, the Dave Matthews band. <laughs> and we're and we're taking the elevator back to our room, you know, after we'd played. And we were hanging out and uh Trance to the Sun was just a couple um rooms down from us. And we we're trying to figure out how to sneak like people in. This, this stay of the night without us getting kicked out of the, the the hotel it was it was ridiculous it was fun that was that a was whole a experience than what i had because i went straight to the bed like to the room and went to bed and i had a completely different experience because besides the dave matthews fans staying in the hotel that night they yeah. were filming a movie yeah <laughs> that's and, right and um the woman that was in the Lyndon Hamilton and as and um, was it Martin Sheen or it was one uh, of the Sheens? 
I think what? so. I think yeah, they were they were staying there too, and they were doing a movie. And so, That's, even yeah. though we were done doing our show and everyone was crashing, out, I wanted to see what was going on. So I I walked down to the street and I just start walking around, and yeah. there's all this activity going on. And finally, this guy runs up to me and he goes, "What are you doing?" Mm-hmm. I'm like, "I'm just walking a." Walking along, he's like, "You're on a movie set. Get out of here!" So I just, I just randomly walked onto the movie set, and I'm like walking up and down the street. <laughs> so they have all these extras. There's all these extras that are just walking. So I'm just walking along. I'm probably stopping and looking at stuff. And they like looking kick at- me off the set. <laughs> we should. I don't know what the name of that movie is, but we should check it out sometime. There's a chance that I might just. Yeah, be I'm sure we can get out. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. There was such a, it's a real experience during that time. That was yeah, funny. Fun time. That, yeah, that was crazy time. And after, you know, then, uh, what was that? I can't remember. Never mind. My, my, <laughs> my, my thoughts have passed. So <laughs> I can't remember what I was going to say. I remember um, when we were in Miami. And we were at Jason Wallach's house, so we're sp- we're staying the night. We'd finished the um, we finished the show, and I was sitting at the bar, and this lady was hitting on me, <laughs> and she was like saying, "Oh, you know, my husband, she does lights, he could help you guys out." And I I was too stupid to realize what was going on. All I wanted to do was go home and like go to the bathroom and take a shower and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think you and Tara were like. Dude, she was totally hidden on you, man. You, you, you totally could have scored. And I'm like, I don't care. I just want to go to sleep and go to the bathroom or go to the bathroom and go to sleep. And then uh, Jason put me in this room. It was surrounded by aquariums of those Scorpion. black emperor scorpions. Yep. They're like a foot long. They're giant. They're man-eating scorpions. And I couldn't sleep because I kept on thinking <laughs> that there were scorpions crawling all over me. I remember that. <laughs> Yeah, that was I crazy. That. that was insane. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm... I slept on the floor at his place, and there was an aquarium right by my head of either spiders or something. But I was so tired at that point that I <laughs> I didn't care, and I just went to sleep. But I remember yeah, there nah. were spiders. Yeah, <sighs> I remember those those um, black scorpions also. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that. For, but for me, I you know I was in the middle of the. Um, the, the car breaking down, <laughs> walking through the swamp. And going back to that walk, I, I mentioned earlier about when I was walking into town through the swamp. Um, I walked, it was like about, I don't know how long, it was like maybe one, one and a half, two miles one way, one road going into the town from the freeway. And I didn't feel comfortable walking on the road, so I was walking on the side and occasionally I'd be stepping in swamp and water. I walked into town, rented a vehicle, came back to the hotel. And then the, the guy at the hotel who was super cool, he was like, oh, you should have told me I would have drove you in there. And he's like, just so you know, don't do that again because there's gators in that swamp. I was like, okay. My eaten by gators. Oh, my God. I don't know. Yeah. Never That's seen but that was that that tour was i mean tara and i did a tour um two tours after that in 97 and those tours were uh 
a, a little better in regards to you know the clubs and everything he was and, better organized but yeah but just because times you know had advanced i i think to a certain extent in 95 there was really no bands like lycia that would do that kind of tour you know when the bands from england would come over and and do tours it was a completely different thing they were a big deal and they would be taken care of we were sort of touring like a, a indie punk band to a certain degree and um because of it none of the clubs really were comfortable with maybe paying us but when we did the the tours in 97 we actually had a booking agent at that time bay ridge booking um great great booking agency that I have nothing but the highest to say about them. They did, they booked a lot of um, metal bands, uh, East Coast metal bands, and they they took us as a client. And we, um, Ken Creedy was the guy that ran the place, super great guy. And I think the guy that um, was assigned to us was a guy named Ben DeWalt, who was one of the guys that was at the, um, helped organize the um, our show at Limelight on July 4th. And he, oh, nice. He was a, a super good guy, and I think he was handling us and Switchblade Symphony and a few other bands. And so we got really good tour. We like we toured in '97 in uh, the first leg. They booked us 27 shows and 30 nights across the country, and we actually it was originally 29 out of 30, but we had a show in Birmingham, Alabama, and a show in Minneapolis canceled because of scheduling conflict. They were able to really just fill us in everywhere. And with the exception of just a couple little shows, they actually got us, uh, for the time, decent pay. And so we we were still touring like the three of us toured with no sound guy and everything. So every night was an adventure with the house sound guy. And there's plenty of stories of that. And I remember in Jacksonville, me telling the sound man, the sound guy came in and he was completely... Um, <clears throat> He, would, he was high or probably more strung out more than anything and, and so i called the dj over and i said do you know how to run this volume knob and he was like yeah i'm like you're the sound man tonight and i told the sound guy to go home because he was so messed up and we pulled into a club into atlanta and they're like well we had a problem last night the roof caved in so you're not going to play on the stage. It was the same club that you had played in Atlanta. So we set up on the floor, on the dance floor and played. So it was always an adventure. Yeah, but didn't your, your guitar, something happened to your guitar that night too, remember? And you had to use Ash's guitar? No, that was, that was, on, the, that was on the tour that we, the three of us did together. And it wasn't a guitar. It was that my voice was gone because I had oh, slept yeah. for... That was the last show after the Florida adventure. And um, I hadn't slept for quite a number of days and I lost my voice. Mm. My voice so Ash, was Ash sang on a couple of songs, right? He sang, he sang one song and um, to the people of Atlanta, I apologize. You paid to come see Lycia play and you got an <laughs> instrumental show. So, But I mean, hey. I swear one of your effects units or somebody's effects unit or something died that night too. Mine. I think Dave's I think yeah. your, your died. Yep. We were yep. uh I thought it was in the uh, Columbus. Could be. And something like there was like some short and ex and I heard a pop and I heard I saw these sparks flying and I went to turn on my effects my rack and everything was dead. Well just 
that's that's the story of the way our tours were back then and you know i really dig a lot of the new bands out here that are going on now but they they have it they have it pretty good i we went and saw soft kill here in town nice and i was i w this was a while ago and they were playing some festival so it wasn't like something that yeah, it was a burrito festival in downtown Phoenix. Actually, a pretty cool event. They had tons of bands playing, and they were headlining. And um, Soft Kill showed up just in the nick of time to play. But technology has improved so much now that the the, the sound guys were walking around in the audience with a tab tablet and doing the sound, and they have all these plug-in effects, tons of feedback repression, and these bands sing with like just washes of reverb and. You know, I don't know if you remember this, Dave, but we used to, when we lived in Ohio, I used to constantly go to all the music stores around the Akron Music, yep. uh, Woodsies, and I was always like going up and talking to the technical people, like looking for equipment that I wanted. And they never had anything, and they were always saying, that's crazy. <clears throat> and what I was looking for is the equipment that's available now. I'm like, I need something that can control feedback and we so that we can do tons of reverb. And they're like... That's never going to happen. And, right. I mean, right. we were just we were just ahead of our time in regards to what we wanted to do. And now bands now can they can go out and play it with these kind of effects. And and it's frustrating to me because um, we still get lots of show offers, but I'm so uh, damaged from the way it was before that I just can't trust when people say, "Oh, it will be good this time," because back in the '90s, everyone would always say. Oh, don't worry. You go play the show. Sound will be great. And then you go there and it would be awful. And that go back to, to 2009, the show that Tara and I did here in Scottsdale. We were assured that the sound was going to be great. And this is exactly how it went. <laughs> I started in sound check. I started walking to the microphone. I didn't even make a sound. And I got about four inches from the microphone and the thing started feedbacking out of control. And I just looked at Tara and I said, <laughs> Fuck this. I'm not singing tonight. I was defeated literally 30 seconds into the sound check because of the way it was for us back in the 90s. Oh my God. That's horrible. So, so every time we get these completely awesome show offers, I'm like, and they're like, don't worry, it'll be great. I'm like, nope, you're just, you're lying. You're, you have great intentions, but it will be a disaster for me. It'll and be great for everyone but Lycia. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's really easy for you to say it's going to be okay, but I'm the one that's going to be standing on the stage <clears> with the feedback and everyone looking at me like, oh my God, what a joke. Yeah. And hey, we're, we're kind of to the point now where like, we like doing these living room shows and mm -hmm. just the guitar, no effects, no yeah. microphones, yeah. no nothing, because you can control that. Yeah, yeah it is. It's liberating. Yeah. It really is. Like, these... Right. At home shows, it's like, okay, we're just going to put turn the phone on, hit record, and we're going to just play. And you don't have to worry about that your mouth is three inches from the microphone, that you have these cords hanging off. You're just playing the guitar, and you're just singing. Right. And if, if Lycia ever does a, a any kind of show, that's the way I want to do it, in some small little intimate place mm -hmm. where we're just yeah. sitting there and playing the acoustic guitars and just performing and just keeping it simple. You know, we're comfortable in the studio, but in terms of live, I'm much more comfortable that way. 
Right. And Dave, if that ever happens, you're more than welcome to come along and join us. Just grab your acoustic guitar <laughs> right. and you can replicate your bass parts on that and we'll just play and have a good time. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, and that's when you talked about doing, there were some people that wanted to hear certain songs last year. I practiced them and I played them and I set up the, the cameras. I couldn't do it. And, and, um, I still, I probably will end up doing them um, because it's just, but it's just that I, I want to have everything controlled and I want everything perfect. And I'm too much of a perfectionist to like want to, you know, I hear something that's like, oh, this is off or this sounds strange. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I would, I would love to do that. I think that'd be, that'd be incredible. That'd be great. We went for the last, um, we did that goth goths for sanctuary which first of all let me say that was a that was a really fun thing for us to do it really um, changed my opinion I think for years I sort of felt a little bit of resentment towards the goth community because I felt that they had expectations of me that I couldn't live up to you know, right. you know same story different you know whatever but um, we did this and it was just such a great experience and it really changed my opinion about all of it but when, when, when Tara and I were setting up to do it, we were going to say, okay, this is, we're going to really make this more Lycia. We're going to use the effects. We're going to have the microphone. And we set up and we started doing it. And it, it was, it was difficult. It didn't, it, it was not yeah. sounding the way we wanted it. And finally we just said, screw this, man, let's just do it raw and acoustic. And it was the best thing we could have done because then right. what we were concentrating on was the, the performance and, and not the technical thing. And I think that right there in itself is where I feel I failed in the nineties in our live performance is that I concentrated more on trying to get the technical aspect right as opposed to actually performing. And I never want to go back and have that distraction again. I want to just think about playing and singing and um, so, I'm much more comfortable with the um, doing acoustic, purely, truly acoustic performances, and then leaving the wall of sound effects for the studio because that's both of our comfort zone for decades now. Yep. I remember when you guys used to practice, um, when I had stopped doing live shows and you and Tara were practicing you know, I would sit there and watch you guys do your shows. And it was amazing. It was really, really good. Um, and it's, you know, I, I probably, it's probably exactly the same situation that you want to put yourself in, in you know, in current times as well. Is just uh, playing in a very controlled environment. And, um, and I think, and that's the problem with, I think with us, we, we, we want everything controlled. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, when you, and that's the problem, we go back to like bands that have the skill set of playing live. We don't have that skill set. We want to have control. We want to have control over the uh, feedback and we want to have control over the, the every aspect of live sound. <clears throat> and, um, when you guys were practicing, I would sit there and watch you guys, and it was perfect. You guys would nail every practice. You know, we, we would do it like two hours of practicing, and I would watch you guys, 
and it'd be perfect. And then I remember you come back after a couple of shows and you'd be like, oh, fuck, it would be terrible. You know, that you'd have problems with feedback and you have other extraneous random issues that would that would yeah. you know, affect your 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 performance. But um oh man, it's just yeah, it's it's weird because it's it's you want to sort of um project like what you want to have and you know per, for your music and then and, and when you play live like i said it's early it's a different skill set than what you are when you're recording in in a bedroom you know it's interesting because that that what you're talking about right there those rehearsals mm -hmm. we we i think those are the rehearsals that we went into the project festival in 1996 and that was that project festival in 1996 was one of the few shows that I think really went well for us because I 100% controlled everything from the stage. Um, I had a sub mixer on stage. I did all the mixing on stage. We had um, wired in-ear monitors. We had them turn all the monitors. We were playing a very large venue, the Vic Theater in Chicago. So we were able to be set far enough back Right. behind the, the big speakers so that there was going to be no feedback so i um the show went really well but that show did not transcribe well into smaller clubs and so we were able to pull off that that big show and it went really well and in fact if anyone wants to go and listen to um compilation appearances i think volume two you can hear great clouds in the morning break so cold and gray from that performance and it the sound is about as good as lycia live got with um with uh, vocals but i did everything from the stage and it was it was difficult i mean i was running the smoke machine i was sub mixing i was playing guitar i had I was singing with a headset mon I was singing with like a, a headset microphone. Yep. And um, I literally felt like I was tied up with rope because I had a cord running to the headphones, a cord running to the microphone, a cord running to the guitar. I had the cords for the lights and the smoke machine in front of me, it was like I couldn't even move. I had to stand exactly in the same spot. And we pulled it off only because we did the practicing. Was it fun? Hell no. It was not fun at all. Because, Tara, you probably remember, even though we nailed that show, we drove out of Chicago saying, fuck this. Fuck. We were like the sex pistols. Fuck this. Fuck that. Fuck everything. I was so frustrated leaving there that even though we played one of the best shows of our career, I just felt so frustrated that I always use the example of like, I just want to be Jim Morrison. Just roll me up to the damn show. Say, there's the stage. Go out and perform. I don't want to worry about whether or not the sound's right or whether the lights are right. Just let me perform. I want right. to just perform. I don't want to worry about all this other shit, but I had to. And, and we pulled it off and then in 97 we went out on the tour Tara probably remembers very well I said that was a that was a, a situation that worked so I hooked up everything I got the headphones 
And the first night I literally took the headphones and fuck this, fuck that. Cause it was feedback. <laughs> you know? And it was like, okay, we did all this practicing and now it's all over. It's done. So we're doing an instrumental set. Then we did the <laughs> instrumental set. And then everyone, then everybody like complained a project. Like this isn't what I booked. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, I'm, I'm working my ass off trying to do something good. And, and everyone is unhappy. Every place I go, it's like, you know, I really love Lycia, but yeah. It's like, okay, thanks, man. So I think there's a lot of people that are actually wondering what happened to the Yuma boys. <laughs> well, I you think know, they were like, in the Capitol a couple days ago. And let me tell you what happened to the Yuma boys. Yeah, they, we don't want to go there because I mean, we I think we all we all are we all, we're all kindred spirits, but we'll just not yeah. go there. Um, the Yuma boys, um, you know, it's funny because on the Start Corner tour, I don't know, man. I was just I had come out of this really dark period, and I was just in a rare situation where goofing around was fun, but. You know, once we got to Ohio and I got really serious about music and then, you know, I had health issues and my mom died unexpectedly and it changed me. And I went from being a happy-go-lucky guy to being like really, um, you know, really a solemn, you know, withdrawn person. You know, I've always been a aloof person, but Tara was there. She saw it. I mean, it was like I was a certain person and all of a sudden. I changed and I never really went back to Yuma boy, but you were around there. It was sort of a goofy time. Yeah. And for people, obviously they're like, what the hell is Yuma boy? <laughs> uh, in the very early days of Lycia, I, I, um, I worked, I don't know why I did this back to the being out of sync and making wrong decisions. I had a college degree, but for some reason I thought, the best decision was to work a low paying job at a rental car company cleaning cars so I could be free to do my music, even though I didn't have a music career going. Um, I worked with this guy. He was from the Yuma area and he was just a real, he was a real backwoods hillbilly and he had all these very bizarre mannerisms, just bizarre. And when um, we were on the Stark Corner tour, we had this guy um, that came along with us and he was a roadie. And um, we just started joking around. I don't know how it came up, but about this this guy. And so we started acting like him. And it just became sort of like, we became sort of obsessive about it. And to the point where we were irritating the hell out of everybody else on the tour. I mean, we just never stopped. It was just nonstop. And it was like, I would just drink beer all the time and just act like this strange guy. And and I'm sure it just irritated the shit out of you, Dave. And it irritated, I know it irritated the hell out of Sam Rosenthal project and, and Jennings, um, his girlfriend at the time who was, uh, uh, you know, working at project at the time. And, yeah. um, Hey, this this, we, I told, I talked about this in a previous um, podcast and you remember this, I'm sure. Remember when we did that, um, that, um, in-store up in Berkeley and we were sort of up in a, some kind of cage or something. Remember people were coming up and 
I told the story about how some girl came up and gave me um, some cards. And when she realized that this guy that was sitting across me, this really goth looking guy, she thought that was me. And when she looked at me and saw that I looked like some guy that was like, a, like some James Dean wannabe with my slick back hair, she was, you could just see then that it, her, her love of Lycia went from 100% to 0%, literally like right there. It was like, oh, that's what you look like? I don't like you anymore. Right. Like that. And that's interesting. Um, uh, I think you remember at one point we were, um, we were showing up. I don't know if it was a show or, or whatever it was. And um, I don't know, the, the, the vendor or something pointed out one of the roadies like, oh, hey, you're, you're Michael, you know, you're Mike Van Portflake. And he's like, nope, that's that guy over there. And it reminded me of back when Jason Farrell first met you and he said, you know, he was coming to your, he was going to visit you for the first time. And the way he described it was like, uh, hey, I'm going to go, when, I, when he was going to talk to you at your apartment, he's like, yeah, I'm going to look for some guy that looks like a, um, <laughs> a uh, now I forgot the name of the band. <laughs> um, Freebird. What's, who's the band of this Freebird? <laughs> yeah, Skinner. So he's like, hey, just look for the guy that looks like a Leonard Skinner fan, and that's going to be the guy that's that did Ionia, you know? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, and, um, oh, go ahead. Oh, there was a time, though, uh, in Chicago when the first convergence, and um, we were all sitting together in a, in a, in a table with, with Sam and Pat, and I don't know if Susan was there or not, but we're sitting there, we're watching uh, Beavis and Butthead, and we're just <laughs> laughing and having a good time. And these two ultra goth girls came walking by and they looked at us and they said, ugh, the mentality of some people. I and remember they, that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we all laughed and like even Sam was like, do they have any fucking idea who we are? And like, they, they don't because all they are doing is just making the fucking scene. You know, they're yeah. just walking by and just like, persecuting us for watching beavis and butthead it was ridiculous it was way more entertaining than the fashion yeah. show that was going on <laughs> right and, it just, and it, that goes back to a lot of the frustrations i had over the years of being classified as something because first and foremost i'm not anti-god mm -mm. right i'm just a person that likes a lot of different things and right. i don't want to be classified as something because i'm just what i am but you would have really enjoyed what I, I had this little this interesting little ploy that I did on the 97 tour. And Tara knows exactly where this is going. Um, the starter set, I had this um, about a six or seven minute long version of Dome from Australia that was distorted. It sounded very bleak like. Remember when me and you were going to do a second bleak album? Yep. Um, and one of the pieces I recorded for that, and I used it as the intro for when we played. And what I used it for was. I wanted to hear what it sounded like out of the PA. So we would, I'd, I'd be on the side of the stage with the, and I would start our um, sequence stuff, which we had on DAT tapes at the time. And I would start it up and then I would literally walk out into the crowd and stand back by the soundboard. Cause it was like a seven minute long song and I could hear what it sounded like out of the speakers. 
And I would sometimes stand out there and just listen to it. And as I was walking through the crowd, the looks I would get from people, because I didn't look goth, I just looked like what I look right here, but I had, I mean. You had long know. hair and a beard. I and had long beard and, a, and a, like a scruff. And I would be standing there and these people would be looking at me like, you're clueless, man. We're here to see Lycia and what are you doing here? And I would be walking around the crowd and then literally I would walk right up to where the security guy was standing next to the stage. And the guy would step back. I'd step on stage, I'd put my guitar and walk right in front of those people. And the look on their faces was worth everything because it was like, right, right. okay, you were just ripping on me and now yep. you're watching me. Yep. And I hate, if there's one thing that I really hate is classifications in music. I like, I like mm -hmm. all kinds of music. I love a lot of goth music. It's, right. It was a big influence on me, but I also like prog rock, I like psychedelic music. I like Led Zeppelin. I like, yep. I love electronic music. I love ambient music. You know, I, I am a music fan. I like all kinds of stuff. And I hate being pigeonholed as just one thing. And I think one thing in Lycia that I've been really proud of is the fact that we always bring in our other influences. Absolutely. Speaking of, um, what what have you guys been listening to like like just recently? Like if you can name any, a couple of bands you've been listening to. Go, Tara, you go first. You're probably. Um, um, I've, I, I don't listen to a ton of music that much. I usually try to listen to like uh, podcasts or stuff like that while I'm working because I find right. it, it takes the time, makes the time go faster. But I've been listening to the same stuff I always listen to. I've been listening to Godflesh again and Swans and um who's i listened to the other day um oh what's her name not chelsea wolf well i listened to chelsea wolf too but emma ruth rundle. yeah emma ruth rundle um yes. just the same kind of stuff yeah. as ever you know um but i don't listen to music a ton right i'm in the same category i don't listen to a whole lot of a lot of stuff but um you know I have an appreciation for a lot of stuff, but the, recently what I, I, I've lit, been listening to is um, um, Peter Newton from um, Clan of Zymox just recently made available um, the early demos of um, oh. Clan of Zymox from the first two albums, which are my favorite two Clan of Zymox albums. And so um, he made them available via his um, social media account and so it's not it's not like an official release. He just um, got these old demos together, and it's absolutely fascinating listening to early versions and alternate versions of the songs from their, their first album and, and from Medusa. And so, the last couple of weeks, I've been listening to those while while I've been working at my job, and um, very fascinating because you know hearing you know, skeletal or raw versions of songs that I've loved for so long. It's, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, but, you know, a few years back, I was listening to a lot of different stuff, but um, yeah, I really, I haven't connected to anything um, in the last year, I think, but I'm sure there's lots of good stuff out there, but well, how about yourself? 
Um, actually, uh, let's see. Chelsea Wolf, mm -hmm. um, Dax Riggs from Acid Bath. Um, yeah. he, even though he hasn't done any, well, he hasn't released anything in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, but listen to that. Uh, believe it or not, this is ridiculous, but this, a group called the Sleaford Mods, which is almost like rap, which is strange. It's English. Um, let's see, what else? I had a whole list of, of people that I've been listening to. Uh, Daughters. Daughters. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, like nice. Um, trying to remember. Uh, yeah, I, I can't come up with anything else right now at the moment. But um, yeah. yeah, it's mostly YouTube stuff. Just, you know. Exactly. Yeah. There's so much stuff like you, you kind of end up going down a rabbit hole where you click, you, you specifically look for one video. And then yep. you see stuff over on the side. I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. And then you end up just finding all this stuff. And I have well, a memory. So I'll find this band and I'll be like, oh, my God, that was so amazing. And then I can't remember who they were. And right. Well, the last couple of days, that soft moon stuff you've been sharing yeah. with me is just Actually, rocks. That's his solo. That's his solo um, stuff. Oh, yeah. It's, that, is, that, that stuff was, that's powerful stuff, man. I, yeah. I really dug it a lot. I think I'm gonna get that album. Yeah, it was really good. I mean, it was just, um, you know, just the way he processes the sense are yeah. rock solid. Yeah. But yeah, you know, there's there's so much good music. I think, um, I think maybe, you know, four or five, six years ago, the scene just really blossomed into being a really cool thing with all these different genres, sort of mixing and matching and, and and the lines were blurred and i really i really enjoyed that but you know i think with covid and everything it threw everybody off and with the the way that society is right now it's so distracting and sometimes i just want quiet not want any peace of mind i don't want to hear anything i just want to go right. to sleep and right right Hope that everything doesn't crumble. It was it was interesting back in the nineties um, when internet started really taking hold of everything. You actually you were saying that like e and the internet will actually be end up being the great equalizer, and I remember you specifically saying that because it was like a kid in his in his room could write a song and have worldwide distribution whereas we were just pretty much regulated to finding like some like label that could get us and take us and, and, and try and promote us but now finally with the, with the internet you know we we breaking through that um those borders those those um those restrictions uh, you know it's that's one thing that I don't think that young bands can ever really appreciate. I think it back. I mean, I'm, I'm an old, I'm an old guy. I started playing in 1981 and I spent a good couple, you know, my first six, seven years in music, just trying to get someone in my local area to just listen to what I was doing. And if you could just get a local 
fanzine. By fanzine, I mean somebody that would handwrite something, Xerox it, staple it together, and put it up at the indie record store. If you could get someone from that to actually just acknowledge that you even existed, felt like a great victory. And I didn't even get that. You know, I, you know, it. The idea of having a a record out when I was in playing a band in like 1983 seems like impossible because um, you can even get, I mean, at least from the vantage point I was at, I, I didn't know of any indies, you know, all my favorite bands were on major labels, all the English post-punk bands. And, yeah. and so I had no idea how to get my music to even get two or three people to hear it, let alone have it exposed. And now someone could say, I'm gonna play music. I think I wanna be in a band. They can go out and buy software and literally two months from now, they could have something up on mm -hmm. digital platforms across and Bandcamp, and they would be perceived as equals to people that actually paid their dues and i really have a problem with that um because i think it's still important to be a musician i don't think there are, I, I i think there's a lot of people out there that have success now that aren't musicians and they don't know how to play an instrument right and i don't think that's right i mean you're a very talented musician that's one of the reasons i was drawn to have you come in the band and I work really hard to try to be a good musician and it's important. It's important. You know, I always remember something when I was in college and I took an art history class and, you know, someone like Picasso can get by with doing abstract art because he is an artist and he has proven himself as an artist. And so if you're an artist, and you have the skill set to be an artist and then you become experimental, then yeah, you're an artist. But if you just start out with the abstract and you can't do the other stuff, then you're just, is that an artist? Is that really an artist? Or is it just somebody that says, I wanna be an artist, so I, I don't need the skill set to do this. I'm just going to, you know, you know right. what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of musicians out there that have success, but they, they're not, they're technicians, they're not musicians. And if you can't, if you can't go into a room with a real instrument and do mm -hmm. something that I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what I think of. I don't think of, it. you know, maybe you make something that sounds cool and everything, but you sort of have to understand music i mean uh, maybe i'm just maybe i've just become that grumpy old guy of like don't stand in my yard but uh, <laughs> right well that's right. definitely happened but uh <laughs> yeah that definitely has happened well i guess so. can we i want to take an intermission really quick i'm gonna run to the bathroom really quick i'll be okay, right back all right <laughs> thanks we're back we're yeah we're back, back. We're back from that commercial break. <laughs> Who is our sponsors, by the way? Um, our sponsor was, well, I shouldn't say this, but um, if you want to, I mean, I'm just putting this out here. I did this a couple weeks ago, but Santan Moon Juice, if you want to do a 
uh, if you really want to do a um, endorsement deal, I would be totally into this because I consume quite a bit of this, and it's probably my favorite IPA. I really love this IPA. It's really a very hoppy IPA, and I um, and it's good stuff. Nice, nice. Free advertisement for <laughs> Everyone else on YouTube seems to be sponsored by AdamandEve.com, but I won't go into the details on that. Well, I'm, to I'm totally game to either Santan, Four Peaks, or Founders. Um, I like all your IPAs, so if you, if you want to, man, I'll be more than happy to push <laughs> okay, your product and consume your product. <laughs> Dave, what do you want? Hi, Dirk. I want to be sponsored by uh, uh, Quinoa or Kiwana. Uh, they, they make a, a really good beer called uh, Widowmaker. It's Ooh. really good. Oh, so good. Hi, Dirk. So, what kind of what kind of beer is your preference? I, I never I used to be I used to be a lost soul that used to drink a typical American bland beer. And then um, Tara started buying me some of these interesting IPAs. And initially I didn't like IPAs. I thought the flavor was just too much. But right. after some point it just clicked with me. And now I'm just I'm just a massive IPA fan. I drink um, a lot of different varieties, and <laughs> I think this is my favorite, the Santang uh, nice. Mood Juice. It's 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 really a a, a very tasty um, adult beverage. Nice, nice. I during the two thousands, I spent a lot of time drinking the cheapest, most ridiculous beer I could ever find, and that was Natty Ice. <laughs> Oh, I don't even drink beer, and I know that can't be right. It was horrible, but it was cheap. And it, it I know you like Fosters, though. I remember you liked Fosters. Yeah, you drank Fosters when we were in Ohio. Yep. That's back right. In the late, back in the late '80s, when John and I, John Fair and I, were just getting Lycia going, we were consuming massive amounts of Milwaukee's Best it, because it was like the cheapest beer. <laughs> and uh, um, I remember we were so excited when we went to the Sun Club and they had Marky Best on tap. <laughs> but, you know, that I, that stuff, I'm sure I would do. Like so, you know, but man, we can lots of that. I remember um, we would uh, get together at um, your house at the house you were renting with Jason and um, there was a couple other people and me yeah. and you would sit there and we'd listen to like swans and we'd sit there and we would drink or we'd, we'd go in the, um, there was an alley that we'd take to like a 7-Eleven or a Circle K. Yeah. And we'd buy, yeah, and we'd sit there and, and we spent like, and that's during the time when we recorded the Burning Circle that we'd, we'd sit there outside in the backyard, just sitting on chairs and just talking about philosophy and all sorts yep. of things. That was good times. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of great talks with Matt from Half String out there. We would sit out in the backyard and drink beer and just talk about, you know, Did music you and life. And... <laughs> yeah, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> the pea tree. <laughs> hey, man. It is what it is. <laughs> there, was a, there was a time when we, we all went out to Lake Erie. <laughs> and we we stopped at Subway, and we had um, lunch at Subway, and then we all we went to Lake Erie, and you and Tara were swimming 
like <laughs> and i had to like run to the bathroom really quick and i ran to the bathroom and it was like a mile away and i got there <laughs> and every stall didn't have a, a door so the last stall had a door and i opened it up and i ran in there and there was no toilet paper and i ran to another stall of grad toilet paper and i took it to the the one that had the door and finally when i got settled I realized that surrounding me were these webs and spiders <laughs> and they were just hanging above me and they're walking around and these giant oh. spiders. And so after I finished, I walked back out and we were driving back home that day. And, and Mike was like, just do what I do. <laughs> just swim backwards. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> It was hey man, it's, Lake, it's Lake Erie. Right. It's probably improving the water quality. <laughs> Wait, right. it's not flammable. This is right. There's a there's a nuclear facility like right down the street. There was. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Hey, we were telling Dirk the story the other day about okay, two stories. Right. One is that you had been eating a bunch of chicken wings and then, yeah, you were eating all these chicken wings and then we were like, what is, what is he doing? You were like tossing this stuff off the balcony. But we're like, what are you doing? And you're like, I'm throwing them down there for the deer. We're like, dude, deers aren't going to eat chicken wings. What are you doing? And then the other story was that, um, do you remember when our toilet was completely clogged up? No. And, <laughs> well, the toilet was incapacitated, but Mike had fixed it and you did not know that he had fixed it. Oops. And so I'm like laying it there in bed with like the windows open because it was nice or whatever. And we hear this noise and we're like, what's going on? You, you had gone out onto the balcony and were peeing off the balcony onto the guy's grill in the balcony <laughs> below us. And we were just like, oh, man. That's the sound we heard. We could hear it hitting the grill. Yeah. But that guy, first of all, that guy was a complete, that guy was a complete jerk. So, man, yeah. I hope you enjoyed the hamburger. Right. right. Yeah, we I, heard no, I remember that, actually. That's funny. Because yeah. I remember peeing on his grill in the middle of the winter. Yeah. Yeah. But he grilled all winter too. So, but he was a loud, <laughs> loud guy, man. Yeah. And he was real, he was a real dick. Oh. I remember he was a real dick. So, yep. Hey, man. <laughs> you make your bed, you sleep in it. You, your dick to us. Enjoy your, your pistol timber, dude. <laughs> and he, he's forever, he's recorded in history as we. As you finish the, the 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 vocals for the one song, and I remember it, he was banging on the, the ceiling. <laughs> it was hilarious. Yeah. Poor guy. He probably was cooking his chicken on like urine soaked, <laughs> you know, charcoal. Don't worry. Brick. He probably he probably got arrested in the riot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's great. Anyways, to move away from that. During our commercial break, um, Tara and I were talking about how maybe we should discuss maybe um, potential future plans. I mean, we were talking at the initial thing about maybe doing a song. Yep. And, um, you know, I think, you know, we've, we've, we've over the last um, 
four or five, six years. Lycia, I think, has really moved beyond what people thought we would do. I think on a line that connects, we we really started very doing a lot of variants. Right. And I really, I really dug that. I really liked the fact that we were, you know, doing a lot of different things and we really took it to the extreme on in flickers. And so I'm, I'm really game to, to expand. Like you've heard some of the stuff that, um, that I, that Tara and I have worked on recently. And you, you know, that we've really crossed into some new styles. I've, I, I did one song that, my guitar playing approach completely changed and it almost sounds a little jazzy. And another one is complete, almost flamenco. Right. And um, I just finished uh, a remake of an old song with John Fair that is another almost synth pop type of thing, a moody synth pop thing. And I know Tara is just, a, she, she loves heavy swan style music. And I know you are a fan of that too. And, so, you know, I'm thinking if we do a split single, maybe we, you know, we move in a direction where we do stuff like that because I, I would find that to be intriguing. I mean, it's more of a musical style that you both guys listen to, but I, you know, I've explored it briefly um, with when I worked with Will Welsh. And I also, we explored it, I think, when I think of a song like Illuminate, which on a line that connects which is a song that I saw I gave you synth parts and you brought back sort of this kick in the gut heavy bass it really added this just really primal punch and I think also a song like rewrite on in flickers Um, I, I really dig exploring that heavier style too you know um, Absolutely. I know. I know you like that stuff too. I, I think that'd be an interesting area to maybe explore. You were you were the person that really introduced me to swans in their um, filth period. Yeah. You know, because what I knew was like love of life, which was obviously yeah. like you know three hundred sixty degrees. You know, it was completely opposite of what they were doing with filth, and. Um, but yeah, you know, I'd I'd be totally down for for doing that because it's it's uh you know uh, it, it allows I think the freedom to sort of explore those darker, heavier, noisier aspects of what um, of what you have done in previous years. I I like the the variety of styles and I like the heavy heavy stuff. Um, you know, I think there's this perception that Lycia was something based on just a particular time frame of the Ionia time frame, where I just happened to be doing something a particular way at that time. That that is just that time. Right. You know, there's a lot of different stuff, and um, I I I I get bored quickly, and that's why. Even though there's this perception that there's a Lycia sound, I always challenge people, well, what is that Lycia sound? Is it, I mean, we have the Boiler Room on the Bleak album. Then there's the acoustic stuff that Tara and I did. There's ambient stuff. There's, you know, a song like Pray. How does Pray fit with the Boiler Room? 
I mean, Pray is almost like a shoegaze pop song, almost. Um, how does right. that fit with a song like Desert? Yeah. The electronic synth stuff. I mean, I just read a story about Throbbing Gristle um, that was on Bandcamp Daily. I read it yesterday, and they were talking about how, you know, they never felt comfortable being perceived as something. And, you know, I've never been comfortable. I like music, a wide variety of music. And I like exploring stuff. And just because, you know, there's ambient songs here and there doesn't mean that I don't like a big heavy song. You know, I, in the seventies, all I listened to was hard rock and heavy stuff. That's all I listened to that and art rock. That's just, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, listen to gentle music. I liked heavy things. When I first started playing the bands in 1981, it was the end of the new wave era. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of arguments with people that I played in bands with that were saying, turn off those foot pedals. But to me, I thought, I got to play with a distortion pedal, which was completely mm -hmm. unfashionable at the time. Um, because of my hard rock, I mean, my hard rock past as a kid, you know, I listened to stuff like Sweet, you know, Ballroom Blitz was, I mean, I, my first concert was Sweet in 1976. Wow. And I, um, you know, the same time I was really into Sex Pistols and the Ramones and Patti Smith and stuff like that, I listened to Judas Priest. I mean, and I also listened to Yes at the same time. Yeah. I also listened to, you know, that soul style Jefferson Starship of Marty Bowen. Mm -hmm. you know, good music is good music. I don't care. You know, I don't care. Absolutely. It's funny because people have this perception. Like, I have people that send me music all the time, and it'll always be some like ethereal girl singer. You know, I think because I think because we were on project, people assume that's the kind of music that I listen to. And I have like, I think that it's pretty or whatever, but it doesn't really do anything for me. And like, I would rather listen to like Lil or like um, Nicki Minaj and Godflesh or whatever. Like to me, like I just I don't know. I just like really heavy, nasty, <laughs> dirty stuff. You know what I mean? And so it's funny yeah. that. The perception yeah. that people have of you, like the whole thing we were talking about earlier about being pigeonholed, like mm -hmm. people expect you. And I do like a lot of the classics, Bauhaus, The Cure, Susie and the Banshees, you know, all that stuff. But but right. it, by the same token, it's like the, that standard goth sound, like I can't name two Sisters of Mercy songs. I don't know anything about Christian death. And it's nothing against that music. It's just not my knowledge, yeah. I guess. And to me, it's you just know? part of the big picture. I mean, right. I, 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 love, I love First, Last, and Always. I listen to that album over and over and over and over. I love that album. But I like other stuff, too. And, right. um, you know, I remember back in the 80s, there were times where there were things that you like and you don't, you know, that you felt like you could say you like and you didn't like because you're young and you're trying to be cool. Right. But 
you know, right around the time that Lycia started really blossoming, you know, that's when I just sort of like let the guard down and, you know, you like what you like. You know, this is funny because when I was working on rewrite, Tara remembers this. I always said, this reminds me, I don't know what it is about this, but it reminds me of Led Zeppelin. Just the end yeah. part. Like, yeah. I don't know what it is. It's just something about it that reminds me of it. Right. And I thought that was a good thing. <laughs> you know, and a lot of people are like, ah, that's old. That's old. Yeah, you know what? It's, I challenge a lot of guitarists to say, you know, listen to Jimmy Page's guitar. He's a very inventive guitar player. And um, yep. um, I, I can't stand when gu guitar players just play standard major chords, right? play play minors, play sevenths, play yep. diminished. That's what makes music interesting. <laughs> well, you were, you, when we were doing the Burning Circle, you had a couple of alternate tunings, didn't you? Yeah, the Burning Circle is an alter, alternate tuning that I had forgotten about, but... Um, a couple years ago, I bought um, Dirk, my son Dirk, a, um, an acoustic guitar. It's what sort of got me back into playing nylon string classical guitars. I bought him one. Nice. And now I have that guitar in that alternate tuning. It took me the longest time to remember what the alternate tuning was because I never wrote any notes down right. in regards to that. So it just I had to just mess around until I figured it out. But... I've actually been practicing um, that song. Oh, nice. Recently, but not recently, but maybe about three, four months ago. And because I have that guitar alternate tune and yeah. someday I might do that in, in one of the live things, but that, that song, I really dig a lot um, um, with the alternate tuning, but that's yeah. the only song I've ever recorded with the alternate tuning. It is a beautiful song. It is a beautiful that's song. I remember, after you had, um, we recorded the, your initial tracks, your acoustic tracks and your vocals. And I went back and I did the, um, I wanted to create sort of a slide guitar instead of those, the change between the verse and the yep. chorus. And I was just like, man, this is just amazing, amazing song. And I remember you told me that you, you had no idea what the alternate tuning actually was because you had tuned it you did the song and we, we recorded without a click track, which was really odd. We normally did everything with a click track, but we, yeah. for whatever reason, we, we wanted to make it more natural. And you did the song live in that little tool room. And um, I had to go back and try to do this, the drums. And, and even now when you listen to the CD, you can hear that it's sort of kind of not quite on. And I remember you were, it bothered you when you listened to that song. You you, you were kind of like, ah, you know, the, the the rhythm isn't quite on, you know, tempo, and and you never felt really good about the actual recorded version of that. But you know, if I had the original tracks, I mean, of course, now with what we have available now, it'd be easy to take that and yeah, reprocess everything into a, a something more modern. I think what you did with that was really amazing, though, because I think when I wrote the song, it, you know, 
I was very heavily influenced by um, Daniel Ash's um, acoustic stuff in the um, in Bauhaus and yeah. like Slice of Life and stuff like that. And it really influenced a lot of, of my writing. You hear a song like um, The Ruins or um, The Ghost Ascends from a Line Connects. It was completely influenced by his playing. And that song too was influenced by his playing. But <laughs> What you did to the song was it brought in another big influence to me from my 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 interest in prog rock, which was at when, when I came in and heard what you did, I was like, oh my god, this is this is Pink Floyd. Yes, yes. I love I love Pink Floyd also. Right, and right. So to me, the fact that that song is like this sort of epic Pink Floyd song on this album. That's right. And. I can only hope that maybe people that listen to that album just don't boil it down to candles and bats. <laughs> it really is. You know, I think um, a song like that really draws on, you know, maybe a lot of our, both of our early, earlier influences. I remember when I first met you, yeah. and you were also really into Prince at the time. And, and a lot of people might not think that was cool at that time, but I thought, I, but I, thought, I like the fact that you're in a, to a variety of things. I remember um, Jason Farrell had released a uh, compilation cassette called Meteorite, and he called a meeting, and that's when me and you first met. That's right. And me and you were talking about music at the time, and we were sort of out there on our own, mm -hmm. talking about stuff that was... And I mean, we'll just be honest here. There was a certain, I don't, I don't like, I don't like going there, but I'm just going to go there anyways. Mm -hmm. certain, and I said this in, there's a certain arrogance with that shoegate theme. Mm -hmm. uh, we, right. we know what's cool and we know what's not cool. Yeah. Whereas me and you were sort of the odd guys out saying, well, yeah, that stuff's cool, but this stuff's cool too. Right. And, and I think that's what led us to working together is that we're like, well, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. we dig all that stuff too, but we also like this and we want to do this. We want to expand this. We want to make it bigger and we want to bring in stuff that maybe people don't think is cool, but yeah, good music is good music. And I don't care what it is. If it's good music, it's good music. And yeah. I don't care if it's not wearing the right uniform. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I hate saying this because I, I really genuinely like all these people, but a lot of times I just really felt that we didn't fit the cool factor to them. You're, you're absolutely right. And that, and, and it's interesting. That's, that's exactly when we met was, it was a party uh, that was celebrating the release of the compilation Millie tape. Yeah. And me and you sat there and you were talking about <clears throat> And I remember specifically, you were talking about using reverb and delay to sort of, in a way, to sort of control the way the song is structured. And we sat there and talked for, I don't know, probably an hour or so about yeah. it. And um, you were absolutely right. And then, and it was interesting. That was the first time I ever met you. We sat there and talked about it, which is funny because previous to that Ionia was released and I had the CD because I, I couldn't make um, I think Jason had a release party at Stinkweeds for yep. your Ionia release 
and I got yeah absolutely right yeah and I sat there and I was like hey man maybe I can come up with some keyboard parts and I remember me and Jason were like how do we because we were doing our own thing and we were imitating our influences and we're like maybe we can practice your songs and I remember practicing a lot of songs in Ionia and like maybe we can somehow get you to hire us as like backup musicians I didn't realize that Oh yeah, I know. It's I never told you that. Um, so I practiced like several songs of the Ioni album, in sort of in the idea that maybe we could talk Mike into hiring us to do live, to, to do to play live, and we I could would. do. Like, yeah, <laughs> I would. <will. laughs> so yeah, that's and that's how. And I remember practicing Ionia several times, the several of the songs, and playing them, coming up with. And then, uh, then I don't know, two or three years later, finally we, you know, Jason suggested you to work with me and uh, um, to do live shows. Yeah. How funny. Yeah, it's it's funny. It really is. Um, and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember when you brought. I remember when Tara came out to Arizona for the first time, and then we came into our to the studio oh and God. recorded. We did those two songs. Was it yeah. "Surrender" and "Zine"? No, it was "Surrender" and "Nimble." Yeah. Nimble. Okay. And "Nimble" was sort of like a an alternate version of "Resigned." Nice. Which nice. me and you had already done. Yep. Um, yeah, that was interesting. I think this two of the Burning Circle. I don't know. I have mixed feelings of it because I, I talked about this in an earlier podcast. I think that while I felt you were a kindred spirit, there was a bit of growing pains at times. I think there's periods on bleak and periods on disc two of the burning circle where you can sort of feel where we're still trying to find a way to melt, to meld our sound together. And, um, I think it was really just a lead into what was going to become with cold where, you know, cold amazes me because there are songs that you almost did a hundred percent, like a song like colder, which is one of my favorite Lycia songs of all time. Um, and then there's songs that I pretty much initiated and did a lot like, uh, like a song like Baltica, but somehow, some way it sounds like one person wrote all those songs right right and, um and maybe because of how cold melded so well together yeah. is the reason why i look back at vein and just two of the burning circle is like not being a hundred it's like 95 percent there but cold was a hundred percent there but because it's not a hundred percent there i'm like oh if only we could have just melded just a little bit more if I could have become a little bit more this way and you could have come a little bit more this way and that's what cold was or yeah I mean there was a lot of tension in the house when we did cold but man yeah. we musically that is a connected album of, a, of people that had worked together for a few years and had played a lot of shows and had recorded a lot together because I mean there was a lot of distractions there not only attention in the house but that's shortly after I found out I had diabetes and right and financially you were struggling and we were on the verge of struggling and and yeah. we didn't know what the future held 
it, it seemed it went from being like we were talking earlier about a year earlier where it seemed like the future seemed massive to suddenly <laughs> it for the first time it felt like it was going to collapse back in on itself and and we were all afraid like that we were going to lose what we had it's crazy it's crazy and you're absolutely right um i remember even when i told you i'm like i, I don't want to do any more live shows yeah and you having to figure out how you and Tara were going to be able to, you know, deal with doing live shows. But um, it was crazy. Yeah, we just reverted back to the way we, me and you did the Start Corner Tour. I mean, we made a nearly horrible decision with adding somebody who is a complete psychopath. Um, which I... Don't say that. Yeah. What's that? Don't say his name. I will not say his name, but um, it is what it is. Right, right. Um, and it obviously was not even remotely close to working. And thankfully, musician friend, you know, was oh, out there. By the way, that was not Jay. It was not Jay. Not Jay is Jay. a. He's a great guy. Yeah, and it it's wasn't. He's still a great guy. Yeah. He's always he was always a great guy, and that's why we brought him along for the last light couple Lycia shows to play yeah. keyboard for us. He's a super cool dude. But anyways, um, um, Tara and I reverted to the um, process that me and you did on the Start Corner Tour, which is taking the electronics. And you know, a lot of people were like, "Oh, you're using a DAT tape? Oh my gosh!" But the thing is, is that we never used the DAT tape for anything that couldn't be sequenced. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you, you no said, vocals, no guitar. Yeah, no vocals or guitars or bass. Anything that could be played, you don't do it. Just the sequence stuff. And as a way, because we were limited financially, you can't bring a bunch of sequencers and you can't buy like three versions of the same rack, rack mount effects. Right. You know, you have to like use the same effect multiple times on different things. And yeah. so the DAT tape made logical sense. And so Tara mm. and I reverted to that um, when you when you decided you weren't tour. And it, it, you know, I was frustrated at the time because I felt that tour, you know, the tour we did that summer was building on something and that the next tour was a pretty massive tour. It was a short tour, but with typo negative and the misfits and stuff. Yep. But I mean, hey, man, everyone is what they are. And, you know, once you decided you weren't going to do it, I was like, okay, well, that's his decision. And so we moved on and, mm -hmm. and we found a way to make it work. And it, and it wasn't the, it wasn't as um, together as maybe our summer tour, but we pulled it off. Sam came along, Sam from Project came along and did our sound. And really that was a great help to us because he knew our sound and, you know, he's not a shy guy, you know, he He'd go into these big rock and roll clubs with like professional sound people and he'd go right up to the board and say, I'm taking over. And he would take over and lo and behold, we wouldn't have any feedback. And, you know, we played some big shows on that tour. We played Roseland Ballroom. Roseland Ballroom on Halloween with typo negative in the Misfits. That's crazy. And, and the sound was great. The sound yeah. was great. Yep. Thank you, Sam, for giving us the best sound on the biggest show Lycia ever played. Yeah, I remember how beautiful the guitar sounded. 
It was, it was, uh, it was. It was Dave, you, should have, you really should have been there, dude, because mm -hmm. it was, you remember going to concerts here in Arizona? Yeah, yeah. Like the, the Arizona, uh, the Arizona Coliseum where the Suns used to play? Yes. It was like that. We got to the stage. It was a concert side stage at a major concert venue. There was union staff on the stage. I started setting my equipment. I remember this woman came out to me and she's like, nope, not allowed. It's against union rules. You go over there, I set up your equipment. <laughs> we have a dress remember with our name on it. Our equipment. <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing. We finished, we this was a rough tour for us, but that show was went really well. We we walked out of the show afterwards. Boston was good. But but we walked out of that show. We didn't as soon as we were done, we went back to the hotel. So we walked outside, our car, our geostorm was yes. parked right by the loading zone. We walked <laughs> out, and as we were loading the car and we were getting ready to pull out, some guy came up to us offering to sell us tickets to the show. He was a scalper. He's like the biggest show in New York City tonight. You want to go in? I just held up my backstage pass and he wanted to buy it from me. Oh my God. He was going to try to sell it. But, um, that right there was um, probably the, the one time when we left there that I thought yeah. we were, we were, we were going to be, we were going to take that next step because it was everything that we had all worked for all those years right. that night New York City Halloween, we played in front of like what? I don't know how many people were there. I'm just asking. I'm, I'm blurry, but I would say it was probably 5,000 people there. Maybe there was more. Maybe there was less. Maybe there was a lot more. Maybe it was I don't think we played before. I don't think there was a lot less, but there was a lot of people. It was, it was Roseland Ballroom. It's a famous venue. It was, it was sold out. Yeah. And um, to play in a venue like that, and to finish your set and you hear a, a crowd erupt like it was like Cheap Trick live at Budokan. <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm, 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 I'm just serious here. It almost brought tears to my eyes because this was 1995 and I started music in, nine, in, in 1981. You talk about paying your dues. Yep. Started in 81 and I didn't have... A, a, a full-scale release until 1991, 10 years later. Most people would have quit, yeah. walked away, and I just felt, you know, I didn't have anything else. So well, I just kept... the days leading up to that show had been so hard, too. Very hard. But... Um, it was cool. What the hell was that? <laughs> what, what? what was that? What? Is there a Sasquatch loose in Northern Michigan? What happened? What did I miss? <laughs> what did I miss? I'll just say this. I'll just say this. I heard it. I just heard it. It was, it was not me. <laughs> Whatever it was, it wasn't me either then, because I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it sounded like an airplane. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. All right. 
Do you ever see Sasquatch up there in the woods by, by any chance? <laughs> I'm sorry, I think he's standing out there. Do you ever see do you ever see any Sasquatch or anything creepy up there in the woods? Actually, I I did one day I looked out the front door and I think it was probably a coyote that had rabies walking towards our house. And um you don't, you know, you don't expect that to happen. Right. I was like, well, that's really weird. That's really this strange looking dog that looks like it's going to kill everybody. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, Chupacabra. Chupacabra. <laughs> I have about 12 acres and um, and you have to keep an eye out. You, you have no idea. Some One day you'll have, we'll have 25 uh, wild turkeys walking through our yard. You know, and then one day there'll be a little baby like fawn in the dog yard and the dogs want to go out and, you know, kill it essentially, you know, but it's, it's crazy. That's cool. That's, I mean, <laughs> what kind of culture shock was that for you? Because, you know, you're from Tempe. Right. Um, I mean, we live out here in what I call superstition, Arizona. Yep. And we literally have what I call a yorch. Part yard, part porch. Um, and you have what you said, 12 acres? Yes, sir. Yeah, 12 acres. 12 oh acres. And it's um, like two of it is is open for the dogs that's fenced in. The rest is wooded and there's hills. Oh my wow. gosh. And um it's, it's interesting. I remember one night that I was standing outside and I walked out there and you can hear the coyotes. They start to yip. Yeah. And they sound like they're five feet from you. Yeah. And, and you start to get a little bit, you know, I mean, you get a little bit weirded out. You know, you're like, oh, I better go inside because these things are going to attack me. Um, it's really strange, you know, because that's true. Like what Mike said, it's like I lived 30 years inside of Tempe, Arizona. And now all of a sudden I have wild turkeys, I have coyotes, wolves, snakes. <laughs> and it's for awesome. everybody out there, Tempe, you know, Tempe is suburban. It's palm trees, swimming pools. Movie star. Uh, every yard is, is somewhat small, fenced in. Um, it's not 12 acres in northern uh, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, Northern Wisconsin. Um, I envy that you, you know, Tara and I both feel quite a bit trapped by the fact that, you know, we established our life, we bought someplace, you know, we live in our house, like everyone else, we have jobs and you have to make the decision what you do with your life. But, you know, you're in a in an area and we're envious of that, you know? I mean, we're in the city, and it would be nice just to be out in the middle of nowhere, you know, just in a smaller town with all that open, wide open spaces and, and, and far in the north and that kind of, kind of climate and stuff. Summers here are unbearable. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous how bad Arizona's summer is. It's just and the air quality here is so bad now you can't freaking breathe. It's bad air quality. Last year was the first year without a monsoon that I ever remember since '78. No, no monsoon, and it was 
hot and it just lasted. We still had days in the mid nineties in November and you know, it's just not, uh, we, we don't, I mean, we love our house. We love our part of town, but there are aspects that we just wish we could get the hell out of here. But I mean, you pick your, you pick your place and you just ride it out, man. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I had no idea that I think we had talked uh, probably 10 years ago and you had, you had said that like, Oh, the UP is somewhere that you had wanted to live at one point. And to be honest, I had no idea that the UP was even a part of the United States. I thought it was Canada. It feels like Canada at times. Yeah. 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 Which but it's, it's interesting. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of things that I've had to learn how to take care of, you know, coming like a city boy going out in the middle of the UP and say, okay, well now you have 16 inches of snow. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with, you know, um, skunks showing up and tearing apart your, your garbage in the middle of the night <laughs> <laughs> or your dog. Coming chicken in bones. Right. 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 Or we, we, I don't know, three or four times we've let our dogs out and they come in and smell like skunk because they want to attack yeah. the skunk. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I grew up in the city. <laughs> in the desert. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's crazy. And um, it's, it's interesting because I remember when we all went out to um, Mike's father's house in Michigan you know and it was such a good time we all we, we got in a pontoon boat and we we you know went out in the lake or something like that and um i had no idea that there was that part of of um mike's life you know and that and it sort of all sort of culminated together and then sort of understood what he was coming from from his perspective and then seeing what tara you know what your perspective from ohio was and it was really interesting how we all sort of like um, combine that together in our in our music. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really cool that you know moving to Kent. Um, you know, in the late seventies, I was totally uh, making. The, I always listened to adventurous music my whole life, and so in the mid seventies, I be, started becoming aware of new music, and in the late seventies, becoming aware of like all this Ohio music and. When we first went to Kent, just knowing that that was, you know, all those bands, the biggest being Devo, were from in and around there, it just felt like I was stepping into like musical history. And I was insanely shocked when I got there that the people that lived there were, were completely unaware mm -hmm. of what went on there, you know, just a number of years earlier. I mean, yeah, just a few years prior. I mean, Tara, you remember we would talk to people and nobody knew that all those influential bands were playing in Kent. You know, Devo played their first show in Kent. Yep. Right. You know, um, but for me as a music fan, I, everything that I looked around when I lived there, I was always looking around from the vantage point of like, wow, this right here is the birthplace of America, American new wave music. And yep. I was living there. Yeah. And you, I mean, you actually, I mean, 
I never actually lived in Kent. We lived in Streetsboro, but Dave, you lived in Kent for quite a number of years down there off of, I still can, didn't you? True. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I have pictures of actually when we drove up and uh, Tara's actually sitting out to our house, like waving to us as we were pulling in. And it was, uh, <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, I lived in Stowe, Kent um, in the 2000s when I was working on my first, you know, three albums. Yeah. And um, it's amazing the, the, the musical history behind that, that, that um, court of area, that, I don't know that that part of town. Mm -hmm. yeah. I just watched a couple of days ago. Um, I, I'm constantly watching music documentaries, and I was uh, yep. wanting to watch the PIL documentary, which Tara and I eventually watched. But um, her and Dirk were in another room, so I saw recommended Devo, and it was just a collection of their videos. And that they had the um, their first video, which I think was Secret Agent Man. Yeah. And that was actually filmed at JB's Down Under, which is uh, in Kent, which we all drove by numerous times. And we first moved up there, the band, that was the massive band at the time in Kent was a band called Dink, which actually yes. was and Butthead. Yep. And they played down there a lot. And just knowing, driving up and down that street, probably, probably a thousand times, because we lived up there yep. for six years and we constantly yeah. down there yeah knowing that that's where our diva was from and and knowing that you know that was a center part of their life and it was an influence on their music and I, then i would be there and i would see you know you see like cool college kids but you also would see portage county i mean <laughs> we all know what that means and you're like how how did this happen here <laughs> You know, right. I mean, yeah. what people were bred from that. That's that's yeah. how that happened. It's a rebellion against that. That's what it was. Yeah. And it makes more sense to me now. And it's bizarre that this whole worldwide music movement had a lot to do with what was going on there in this uh, culture yeah. shock. Absolutely. Um, I like my time in Ohio, but we were very secluded and we lived our musician life up in Streetsboro and in our apartment looking out at the woods. Me and Tara were just talking the other day. If we often wondered if we got an apartment facing the other way, we probably would not have the same memories. <laughs> we looked straight out into what appeared to be pure nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which influenced, uh, I mean, I remember very well. I just found out I had diabetes and the backwoods doctors there basically told me I was going to die. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I'm working on these songs and we're having that massive winter of 95. Yep. There's like snow everywhere. And I'm sitting there looking outside. I'm sick as a dog. And I, right playing writing Baltica and snow yeah. seeing that snow just coming down outside and, and I think I was looking the other direction and I was looking at the guy working on, working on his car in the parking lot uh, <laughs> might have a whole different different 
vibe, you know, but instead I'm looking out what appears to be looking on in pure nature. I mean, that, that view is gone. Every day. What's that? We were looking at what Dave gets to see now every day. Yeah, yeah, basically. And the thing about it is that that that's gone now. Just like everything, like Dave, you wouldn't recognize Tempe if you came back. It's it's a completely different world. I've 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 gone through like Google Earth and gone through Tempe, and you're absolutely right. It's it's completely changed, and it's really depressing to see like the place that you grew up as a kid. As you look at it right now, and it's, you feel like a complete stranger. Well, Streetsboro would be the same way, too, because that oh, that view we had, there's houses there now. They built that whole place uh-huh. up. And, um, you know, I, I loved living in Streetsboro because we, we were close to the things that we needed to be close to. But mm-hmm. that apartment, we were on the top floor in a quiet building. And when we get there, all we would see are trees and fields. And it just, it felt like you were a million miles away from everything. And it was, it was like for me, because, you know, we were somewhat making a living. It felt, it was like pure escapism for me being up there. Right. You know, it was. You know, Tempe, the Tempe that we know is gone. The Streetsboro we know is gone. Kent, though, is quite the same. Tara and I were there in... Um, the vibe feels the same. 20 or 15, 20, 2015, and it's actually the same, but almost a little cooler. It's, nice. Yeah. I feel completely detached from everything because the Ohio that I knew is gone, um, mm-hmm. but I don't feel particularly attached here either. So I'm just like a... What do you, what do they call that? A fish without a home? I don't know what, is that a saying? Let me, let me just backtrack here. No, the Ohio you knew isn't gone. It's very much the same. You changed because Ohio is, that Ohio hasn't changed at all. You were the. Anomaly. You were the anomaly. (laughs) But as we well know, it's still the same. Yeah. We, and it's better that we're out here. And it's better that you're in probably in northern Michigan. Right, right. That's a question. You're in northern Michigan, but you live in Wisconsin. But is it because Iron Mountain is the main city there? Is that what it is? It is. Actually, I could probably throw I could throw a football across the border of Wisconsin to Michigan. Yeah. Um, and I drive in every day to work in Michigan. Um, and it's because it's the main city, right? Yep. I mean, where you live is basically just part of Iron Mountain, but it just happens to be across the border. Exactly. Right. It's, it's 15 minutes. It takes me to get to my job. And then the border is probably less than a quarter mile away. Actually, like probably, it's definitely less than a quarter mile away. um, The um, Menominee River is hundred yards. It's like two hundred yards away from my house. That's awesome. Yeah, that's it's it's cool. We We envy that you get to live up there. We could come pitch a tent like on the back (laughs) acre of your. <laughs> watch those crazy coyotes, though. Right. 
you guys could move in because the house we're in right now is like way it's made for a like a family not just two people and three dogs <laughs> it's ridiculous you well know. it seems like things are stabilizing out now but maybe like a week ago we were like going what the hell man i was looking at the canadian Im immigration policies there for a bit <laughs> right yeah it's crazy it's crazy yeah on that note we've been talking for over two hours now and i'm trying to keep these over around the two hour mark so yep. we can keep talking but i'm gonna stop recording okay so, hey man thanks for yeah, thanks for coming on. It was great talking to you. And we could, of course, do these however many times we feel like doing them. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. That'd be great. We'll probably have, I'm sure. I mean, we all still have a million stories. There's so we barely scratched the surface. That's oh, true. yeah. There's, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's what's interesting about these shows is that when I, when I, when I start thinking about what I want to talk about, they always go in a different direction. The one that me and you did, Tara, together, it went completely in a different direction than I thought. The one we did with John Fair last week went in a completely different direction. Yeah. There's just lots to talk about. Yep. And we haven't seen each other in so long. So it's like, rah, 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 talking, 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 talking. So okay, I'm going to stop recording and then we can go from there. So nice. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks again. Bye.